Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into the great Christian thinkers. Um, We are in the final weeks or maybe months of our treatment of the great Christian thinkers as we are in the 20th century. And before we jump into our subject matter for this evening, I just want to thank all of you out there for tuning in to Seeds of Truth. Uh, whether it be locally or internationally by way of podcast. And I also wanted to extend um, a thank you to those who have purchased uh, my book, A Heart for Evangelizing. I have received a few of your emails out there, and you're wanting to talk about what it means to have a heart for evangelizing. And for that, I am very grateful, and I am very excited to journey with um, so many of you as you ask me questions by way of email. And again, that email is j-h-o-l-l-j-m-j at yahoo.com so that we might go deeper uh, and journey together deeper in the Christian and Catholic faith. And uh, so with that, um, it is Monday evening, so that means I have John O'Hare in studio with me. John, great to have you with me another evening. Great to be here again, and I purchased my copy (laughs) as soon as it came out on Amazon, so yeah. (laughs) Very good. I have yet to get my autograph. Okay, well, (laughs) we can can arrange that sooner than later, John. (laughs) Well, it's, it's great to have the opportunity to have a new form, if you will, to discuss the faith with different people. Anyhow, we are in the 20th century, John, and as we noted in our time, our time together a few weeks ago, and we are set to discuss this evening, one, Father Henri de Lubac and Father Hansers von Balthasar, and we're going to treat them together because in so many ways and in so many forms, uh, you look at them together. They really are to be seen as two men who had a message for the church in the 20th century. And so we encounter them, yes, in their uh, personal narratives, and we'll certainly talk about that, but also in their message. And mindful, John, as it was with Gardini, mindful that these are the mentors of John Paul II, of Benedict XVI, and to a lesser degree, Pope Francis, but nonetheless, mentors of our last three popes, especially, especially Benedict XVI, and we'll get a, a sense why by the end of this program. So, Romano Gardini a few weeks ago, and this evening, Henri de Lubac and von Balthasar. These are the three great men that influenced the last three papacies. So I've heard, Joe. I <laughs> must claim that I come here with a little bit of ignorance. Uh, I first heard about Henri de Lubac. Well, I heard about him, but George Weigel suggested, a, this is 2004, a book that uh, a Catholic street is called The Drama of Atheist Humanism by de Lubac. I mm-hmm. bought the book and read it. That is the only book I've read by one of our writers tonight, sorry to say. Yeah. so uh, No simple I, read either. Yeah. The drama of atheistic uh, humanism is no simple read. I was a little surprised that actually George Weigel recommended the book because <laughs> it's a little bit difficult to read, but yeah. it is an important read. And there are so many caveat stories as it relates to their importance, but let me share with you one, John, and, and this goes specifically to the relationship between John Paul II and de Lubac. Um, on one occasion after he was elected Pope, he was giving an address to a larger congregation. And as he was speaking, he saw Father Henri de Lubac come in the back door, and he stopped. He stopped his address, 
he went down from the podium and he said, I bow my head to Father Henri de Lubac. Wow. Okay, this is Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul II, a man who in his own right, by many respected opinions, will be a doctor of the church, said, I bow my head to Father Henri de Lubac. Now, why would he say that, John? Well, clearly of his deep, deep respect that he had for Father Henri de Lubac, this great French theologian, who, oh, by the way, he met in a matter of great providence, because when John Paul II arrived at the Second Vatican Council, John, he arrived as a bishop. Well, during Vatican II, he was elevated to a cardinal. During Vatican II, if you were elevated to a new rank, uh, archbishop, uh, cardinal, you moved up literally some tables, if you will. So, Carol Wojtyla moves up some tables, and now he finds himself in the company of one Kungar, who we will talk about next week, and also Henri de Lubac. Okay, so he moves up, and now he strikes up this relationship, a much deeper relationship with Henri de Lubac, and ultimately a relationship with, that would have a huge impact, not only upon John Paul II, but obviously <laughs> the life of the church. Yeah. Henri de Lubac was born, as many of our most recent people have been, in the latter part of the 19th century, born February 20th, 1896. Now, he died in 1991. He was born in France, and he died in France. And he came from a wealthy family and had a good education. And he decided in 1913 he wanted to become a Jesuit. Right around, and he does. Well, I mean, he enters the, shall we say, the seminary. Yeah. However, France kicked out the Jesuits right around this time. Those Jesuits get kicked out of more countries. <laughs> and get a load of this irony. The Jesuits have to flee to England to continue. Mm-hmm. I remember the England kicked everybody out. Uh-huh, and, uh, think uh-huh. of Campion. Okay, so anyway, this time the Jesuits go to England where they can continue their seminary studies, which he does. He's a Jesuit, and he, or, he is ordained in the order. But however, while he's studying in England, World War I breaks out, and he's drafted by the French army. I mean, they don't want the don't want French Jesuits here, but they want Frenchmen in the army. Mm -hmm. So he goes back, and he fights in the army, and on November the 1st, All Saints Day, 1917, he is in a battle at Les Esparges, and he receives a head wound, and he has had headaches the remainder of his life from that wound. I mean, I'm not saying he suffered constantly, but it was a deal. So anyway, he uh, comes back, and he's ordained in uh, 22nd of August, 1927, at age 31, and he was quite a student, and he continues studying, and he continues writing, and as World War II breaks out, he has to kind of go into hiding yes. to continue writing. Now, he was spent some of his time in Vichy, France, mm-hmm. and he keeps writing. But several of his brethren, priest brethren, were arrested and executed. They didn't get to him, but uh, he was right there, and he just keeps on, you know, imagine the concentration. They have all this going on. He does some marvelous writing uh, during this time period, and then... After World War II, he keeps going. Okay? Yeah, and that's a good point, John, and actually something I wanted to talk about, how his theology was impacted uh, by these events, right? He, he goes to World War I. You know, he, he's in battle of World War I. He has this near-death experience. He loses his closest friends, as you mentioned. And then also during World War II, his closest friends are killed and executed by the Gestapo. So this has a huge impact upon him. And one has to believe that this really sharpened his own faith. His writings are so 
vast, John. He wrote on so many different things. He wrote on atheism, as, as you've already noted in his work, The Drama of Atheistic Humanism. He wrote on uh, Buddhism. Of course, he is the single greatest 20th century theologian on biblical scholarship, if I can be so bold as to say. That's my humble opinion, uh, but certainly something that is echoed by many. Um, he also wrote a great deal on the nature of the church, and maybe his most important work was on Catholicism itself, and more specifically, the sacramental nature of Catholicism, how the Catholic Church is a great sign of God's love. So these are his great contributions. And my point is this, John, that everything he would have written would have had that backdrop of all of those near-death experiences, if you will. And I speak to this because sometimes, John, we can forget about the human element of these great uh, 20th century theologians. We talked about Romano Gardini uh, suffering from clinical depression. Uh, who would have ever known if we didn't yeah. bring it up that he suffered from clinical depression, right? Here you have a man who had several near-death experiences. I mean, you know, the assassination attempt on John Paul II, he himself talked about what that did for him and just not his faith, but also his writing. So yeah. there is a human element here that is very important. And um, what you speak to, John, is is really at the top for me of what needs to be highlighted. Okay. One little thing I'd like to interrupt with is there were more dark years than the wars descended upon Henri de Lubac. And around 1950, this is a quote I have, you know more about it than I did, but the Rome said that he was guilty of pernicious errors on essential points of dogma. And from 1950 to 1958, those were dark years for Henri de Lubac. Mm -hmm. As I mean, he was still a priest, still, a, but uh, you know, he was still a Jesuit. That might even be an honor point for the Jesuits. I don't know, but uh, he, um, the, the church, the official church, frowned on his writings that have are now so fundamental. Yeah, there are several things there, John. The first of which being some of his writings on grace. They they weren't sure. Um, now we don't question that. But the other major thing was the way in which he was theologizing as it relates to how to teach theology, right? Um, what am I talking about? Well, take, for example, uh, the reality that in the 30s and 40s you were just obedient to the church because the church said it, right? There was no real deeper understanding of why the church taught what they taught. You just kind of, you know, trusted the, the, the priest and trusted the church, and certainly a lot of uh, priests and and theologians were were right on the mark, but for de Lubach, what he wanted to see was a renewal in how to teach the faith. That we need to go to the people. We need to be renewed in this deeper sense of what evangelization is all about. Okay, to essentially be more proactive in instructing the ignorant, and I don't mean ignorant in in a disparaging context as much as I speak to ignorance in its truest sense without knowing. Right, so. Um, he was very strong in this area. Just jumping around here, but in 1958, John Paul, I mean, uh, J John Twenty-Third becomes Pope. Pope Pius XII died. God bless him. And soon after that, John Twenty-Third calls for Vatican II, and people are saying, what on earth is he doing? What's wrong with the church right now? Well, something was going on that a lot of Pew Catholics, such as my own parents, I was a kid then, we just didn't know. Just I guess we just didn't really know. We knew the Catholic Church, but the real, you know, there were things going on there that we didn't know, and they, and John the Twenty Third and many others did, yes. and something needed to be uh, attended to. Yes. And Henri de Lubac did this. One other little aside: one of his friends was 
a Jesuit named Pierre de Chardin. Oh. Very controversial. Oh, yes. Yet yes. he was quite friendly with this man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. yeah, and he had a huge impact upon him. I want to speak to Vatican II because it really does dovetail our discussion here, John. Um, alongside of Ratzinger, of course, du Lubach in Vatican II was known as uh, a peritus. What is that? That is a theological expert. This is what the Oxford Dictionary of the Catholic Church has to say about de Lubach. De Lubach was one of the thinkers who created the intellectual climate that made possible the Second Vatican Council. Wow. Largely, this is very important, John, largely by opening up the vast spiritual resources of the Catholic tradition. Okay, so de Lubach was an expert in the patristic. So de Lubach was an expert in, well, what did we talk about a year and a half ago? Yes, exactly. The Church Fathers, right? So as a theological expert in this area, he opened up, essentially, a treasure of insight. And ultimately what Vatican II does then is rediscover its own identity, 1918, 1700 years later, so as to bring the faith to the people, right? As we talk about this, I hear it said so often, the Catholic Church at times seems so incomprehensible. There are so many things, and yet it is our duty, John, to bring down what is so incomprehensible and make it comprehensible. And what Vatican II set out to do, right, was to say, let's rediscover, let's rediscover um, our own identity in Jesus Christ in this universal call to holiness, and in so doing, ask the question, how can we be better transmitters of the Christian and Catholic faith? And de Lubach was leading the discussion, once again, <laughs> along with the figure we will talk about next week in Congar. Yeah. Um, so very important that you bring that up, John. Yeah, I heard that uh, a 1953 writing was, had something to do with Lumen Gentium. Now, that is, he, that is one of the major documents of Vatican II, yes. and his writings had to do with that particular uh, with that particular document. Yeah, and that uh, great uh, Const- document, Constitution, you know, Lumen Gentium, yeah. was very much about engaging the world. And this comes from the heart, the heart of de Lubach's teachings. I wanted John to go to Ratzinger's encyclical, Saved in Hope, as we are talking about this and as I'm thinking about this. In paragraph 13 of this great encyclical, of this great document titled Saved in Hope, then Pope Benedict XVI is reflecting into this question, is Christian hope individualistic? And who does he go to but Henri de Lubach in this encyclical? How surprising. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he says he has something important to say here, right? And this is uh, de Lubach. Should I have found joy? No, only my joy. And that is something wildly different. The joy of Jesus can be personal. It can belong to a single man, and he is saved. He is at peace, now and always, but he is alone. The isolation of this joy does not trouble him. On the contrary, he is the chosen one. In his blessedness, he passes through the battlefields with a rose in his hand. You see, what point is Benedict XVI making? Quite simply, (laughs) that Christ's joy is not uh, fulfilled until everyone encounters that joy, is enfolded in that joy, until everyone experiences the universal joy of Jesus Christ. So Benedict wants us to see that in our hope, and we define hope as that confident assurance of things yet to come, is realized when we encounter the hope of Jesus Christ. And we 
should never tire in proclaiming this truth until everyone has experienced this great joy. What is Benedict XVI talking about? What is Henri de Lubac after? Well, what was Jesus Christ doing when he was here on earth? He'd go into one town, and then he would, he would withdraw, John. He would retreat. And the apostles would find him, right, and say, Jesus, Jesus, Master, Master, we need to go back into the town because they want to hear more of your message. And what, what did Jesus say? And I'm paraphrasing now, but ultimately, they have already encountered me. We must move forward, right? And so what Henri de Lubac wants us to see is that hope, joy, faith, love, it is never to be privatized. The whole baptismal vocation, John, is essentially to go out. And does this not highlight uh, the larger structure of uh, the Catholic faith? In God for other. New identity, new goal. We come to know him so as to make him known. This is what it's about, and this is what lies at the heart of Henri de Lubac. This is why Vatican II kept on going back to him. There's a great chapter at the end of his work, Catholicism, that talks about the relationship between person and society. Person and society. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi once said, if you wish to sanctify society, you must first sanctify self, right? In God for other. Now, this is what lies at the heart of Henri de Lubac. This is what lies at the heart of the church. And ultimately, John, this is what lies at the heart of the message we are to live and proclaim. That certainly is not the way we're living our life today, John. That statement just got me. What are we into now? Autonomy. Mm. I want to decide for myself what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I'm off track here. No, 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 no not at all. iPhones and all of our stuff, you can get into a world pretty much of your own. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, iPhones, iPads, iPods. It's all. nothing it's, wrong with that stuff. It's not. When you start getting into a world in which you're only with people that agree with you, mm-hmm. or whatever, however you want to put this, autonomy, mm-hmm. which is an issue mm-hmm. uh, that is just, I, I don't think it's healthy. Well, let's use this point to transition a little bit to von Balthasar, because von Balthasar spoke to this a great deal, and he would speak to it in the context of the ego drama and the theodrama. You know, what is the ego drama? The ego drama is uh, the person who writes his own plays. The ego drama is the person who produces his own plays. The ego drama is the person who directs his own plays. And above all else, (laughs) the ego drama, John, is the person who stars in his own plays, right? right? (laughs) The theodrama, the theodrama is the essence of love, to will the good of the other, to be present to other in the unfolding drama that is salvation history. And von Balthasar certainly would have us see this for what it is, because this lies at the heart of the Christian and Catholic faith. And so what we have, John, is de Lubac, this great theologian who would speak to person and society, is kind of his emphasis, you know, in God for other. And von Balthasar would then take this baton and theologically reflect with his own charism. And why would I bring those two together there? Well, von Balthasar was a student of Henri de Lubac, right? And de Lubac, himself once said that von Balthasar was the most cultured man in Europe of his time. Yes, he did. The most cultured man in Europe of his time. What did he mean? Well, consider this. Von Balthasar grows up in a family where everyone speaks at least four languages, and everyone has a high uh, level of musical education. His father was a church architect. His mother was in charge of of the Swiss League of Catholic Women. His uncle was a Hungarian bishop who was martyred on Good Friday and who we now know as Blessed Vilmos Epor, huh? 
Another relative on the Apor side was a Hungarian envoy to the Holy See, and his sister became the general of a Franciscan order of nuns. I mean, this is extraordinary. So in the Balthasar family tree, you have a family loaded with what we can call a Catholic cultural capital, if you will. Nice to hear about these good Catholic families. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, von Balthasar's dates, by the way, were 1905 to 1988. And uh, I think we should mention about von Balthasar is Adrian von Speer. Oh, uh, of Von Balthasar was Swiss and spent, born in Switzerland, died in Switzerland, but spent a lot of time in Germany. And he, he, he met Adrian von Speer. Just a little bit about her. She was uh, a twice-married uh, MD doctor and uh, a Protestant. And... She was having mystical experiences, and von Balthasar met her. She converted to Catholicism through him, and he was kind of her spiritual director through all of her stuff. She's a, an interesting uh, writer in her own way, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, but, but von Balthasar was actually her spiritual guide. Now, von Balthasar had, in what I understand, is three major pieces of writing. One was The Glory of the Lord. Now, that is a seven-volume piece about aesthetics, yes. more or less. Yes. Then he had a uh, a theodrama, which you've already mentioned, that's five volumes, good short works, so I get through this in maybe the summer. Yeah. <laughs> and then another one called Theologic, three volumes on human reason is inescapably open to the transcendent. Okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah, Like yeah. reading there. You know, he was a, another great writer. Again, both of these guys were made cardinals, although von Balthasar died a few days before he was to receive, uh, to attend the ceremony. Yeah, as you speak to these resources, John... Um, I'm made to go to an address um, from Benedict XVI in 2005. Now, Benedict XVI was a close friend of von Balthasar's. In this address, he observed that it is going to be a very difficult thing to not talk about our many fond spiritual memories together, but I want to talk about his theology. So this is what he did, and, and I do want to go to what Benedict XVI has to say here, because I think he gets to the heart of all of those documents you just talked about, all of those very rich documents, 15 volumes in total. Um, I only have seven of the volumes. (laughs) I don't have all 15, and it is rich theology, but Benedict distills the essence of it for us here, John, and again, I want to speak to this here. This is Benedict XVI. Von Balthasar made the mystery of the Incarnation the preferential object of his studies. Okay, so God become man. And he saw in the Paschal mystery the most expressive form of this descent of God into human history. Indeed, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Paschal mystery, the mystery of God's Trinitarian love is revealed in its fullness. What is he talking about there? Just trying to just continue to simplify here, John. You know, in the great hymn that comes to us from Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, um, we read Paul talking about how Jesus did not deem equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, obedient to the cross, and unto death. And in that moment for St. Paul, and as von Balthasar would reflect, we have a profound insight into the revelation of the Trinity. And what is it? Essentially, suffering, right? Obedience and suffering. Okay, let us take a step back here. What is the Trinity? The Trinity, simply defined, John, as we've talked about it, is love given, love received, love shared. Love shared is the Holy Spirit. The love shared is the profound revelation, the obedience unto the cross, right? The obedience unto the cross. So the, the whole mystery of the incarnation moves towards uh, the Paschal mystery. He goes on, the reality of the faith finds here 
its unsurpassable beauty. In the drama of the Paschal Mystery, God fully lives out his act of becoming man. But at the same time, he makes man's action meaningful and gives concrete form to the engagement of the Christian in the world. What is he talking about there, John? Well, let us think about this practically. Do we define man to the extent of how he progresses technologically? Do we define man by what he does? No. If that was the sum total of man, we'd all be miserable. Yes, we right? would. What does Jesus Christ reveal? That the sum total of man has deeper meaning than just what we do, but who we are and how we love in what we do right? How we accept the sufferings that we all endure, Yes. right? And just to wrap up this quote here, because I think he says something very important. He looked everywhere for signs of the presence of God and of his truth in philosophy, in literature, in religions, always managing to break through the circuitous reasoning that often holds the mind a prisoner of itself and opening it up to the horizons of the infinite. And this is his most important point, I believe, of Balthasar. Theology, as he conceived of it, again, this is Benedict talking about von Balthasar, must be joined with spirituality. Indeed, only in this way could it be profound and effective. So what is he saying, John? Well, what did Pope Francis say, oh, about a year and a half, two years ago? All good theology starts on bended knee, right? All good theology starts on bended knee. He's simply echoing von Balthasar that who we are in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, who we are in our spirituality, will be what gives impetus to profound and effective theology. You see? And let us remember something here, John. When we talk about spirituality, we are not talking about something in the abstract. We are talking about something very concrete. And what do I mean? Spirituality is synonymous with longing for God. Spirituality is synonymous with desiring God. Uh, For St. Teresa of Avila, spirituality is about living in that wounded ache for God. And this, again, is what lies at the heart of von Balthasar, and in so many ways, John, also de Lubach, as one was a student of the other, both constantly going deeper in their own theological pursuits. My information is that von Balthasar was not invited to Vatican II. It was not until after Vatican II was over that Paul VI realized his contributions and invited him to the Theological Commission. And from there on, von Balthasar was uh, welcomed within the Church. Yeah, and in that, it should be said, in 1972, the most uh, concrete moment that would unite not only de Lubach and von Balthasar, but also Ratzinger, would be that those three would come together and start what is known as the International Catholic Review, Communio. Oh, good. I'm glad you Comunio. raised that, yes. Communio is the most popular Orthodox theological journal out there. It's still around today. And uh, that was started by Ratzinger, von Balthasar, and de Lubach in 1972. And it was started good. in conjunction with the request that came from Pope Paul VI. Yes. Amen to that. Okay, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.